In the interest of time, I will abbreviate the second lesson and begin in Matthew chapter 12 at verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, that is Jesus, on how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and he charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. And then from Matthew 11:28, following, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Take my, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. May God bless to our hearts a proper understanding of this his word. Our theme is printed for you in the church bulletin, The Gentleness of God. The first of our scripture portions is taken from the 18th Psalm, verse 35. If you take the time to study that psalm, you will find that it is a great celebration psalm, one in which praise is given to God by David for God's gracious dealings with his servant David. David recalls unquestionably how as a little boy he had been taken from driving the sheep and he had been made not only a great military leader protected by all of the deceit and jealousy and maliciousness of Saul, but how he had been raised by God to a position of great power and authority and how God would bless all of the nations of the world ultimately through his servant David. That's why we speak of our covenant-keeping God and of the promises which, we, which he has made to us. The psalmist says it very simply, Thy gentleness hath made me great. When I think of gentleness, I cannot help but think of my own mother. My father died when I was but a small infant, and I can well remember as a little boy a whole host of incidents that took place running as a little four-year-old and jumping over a ditch and landing with my bare foot on a broken Coke bottle and cutting it. Right away, I wanted Mama. I remember how she could take even the simple country remedies that we had, nothing but kerosene or turpentine, and pour into the wound and banish it and banish the pain by loving me and by showing her care for me. I can remember a little later on when we'd moved off the farm and into the town. I'd gathered at a railroad yard with some boys one day to play. 
We were running across the tops of boxcars, and I decided to be the Lone Ranger and jump down, and I did, and I cracked my right ankle. And I remember a big burly guy who worked in the railroad yard. This was in the Depression days when times were hard. You could get a taxi cab for about 10 or 15 cents, and he called a taxi. When the taxi driver came and I was in great pain, he told the taxi driver, take him to his mother, take him home. He didn't know me, but he was a kind man, and he knew what to do. And I remember when I went to my mother, it was her gentleness that caused me to feel better. And I remember when I was in the hospital, I didn't want her to leave. I wanted her there. Anyone who ever watches a great teacher knows that a teacher has to have a certain amount of gentleness to begin with. There's always the firmer moments that come later when that has to be. But he has to begin by being gentle. Thy gentleness, says the psalmist, hath made me great. It's not the torrential downpours of drenching rain that really help the crops, but it's the slow, steady, soft rain that causes them really to grow. It's not the strong, driving wind that comes like a hurricane ripping up everything in its path that does us any good, but it's the refreshing, reviving wind that sweeps and revives our souls and refreshes our land. Thy gentleness, said the psalmist, hath made me great. Not the burning desert sun scalding and scorching everything within sight, but the gentle rays. We plant our tenderest plants so that they will catch what our mountain people call the eastern sun. <laughs> they catch that first sun of the morning, and those always prosper, and any good gardener uh, will bear testimony to that fact, for it is a fact. And then uh, the psalmist has spoken of thy gentleness hath made me great. When I think of the Old Testament and I think of all of those people, you remember Elijah? I love Elijah. He's almost a, an analogy of Simon Peter. He's the Old Testament Simon Peter in a way. We know that he's a lot like John the Baptist, but his impetuosity and his impulsiveness remind me tremendously of Peter. Elijah was a prophet of God, and Elijah was horrified seeing the whole land desecrated by the worship of Baal, a sensual, decadent, corrupt cult uh, that had sprung up where the pure worship of God should have been. And so Elijah appears dramatically and suddenly upon the scene. We're told that he is Elijah the Tishbite, but we don't know any more for that because we don't know where Tishbe was. Elijah comes and he appears and he denounces false worship and wrong practices and he calls out for righteousness and he dramatically announces that there's going to be a tremendous drought in the land. And so there comes a scorching drought. Then there is that great confrontation that took place on Mount Carmel where he challenged all of the prophets of Baal to a duel of prayer at 50 paces. And how they gathered on the Mount Carmel and the prayers went up. And the Lord God of Elijah demonstrated his power by sending fire from heaven. And then you remember how Elijah fled after he heard that Jezebel was going to take away his life. 
You know, we have our spiritual ups and our spiritual downs. Many of you have been here at a great uh, Congress, and you'll go back home again. You won't always hear Bob Mumford preach, and you won't always hear this great singing, and you won't always feel all that tingly excitement that's there. I tell people that I know salvation doesn't depend on feelings, or all the preachers would be in hell every Monday morning. <laughs> uh, you, you have to... <laughs> You have to, uh, to, to not depend upon the feeling, but the word of God. The feeling's good, but feelings come and go. Well, old Elijah had felt powerful up there on Mount Carmel, but he ran. And he ran so fast that, as the old country preacher put it, you could have played checkers on his coattail. He was moving out to get away from Jezebel. He heard that she was going to kill him. And you know how he went to that juniper tree and how he prayed that he'd die? Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't always hear our prayers? <laughs> the Lord didn't hear Elijah's silly prayer. <laughs> he wasn't going to let him die. And uh, Elijah has to go, and, get, and, and the Lord sends this very human angel who gives him something to eat and says, Oh, Elijah, cool it. We're going to give you something to eat, let you rest up for a little while. And uh, then he goes further away when he gets a little more strength. <laughs> He's still going to get away, and he goes to the mountain of mystery and marvel where God speaks at Mount Horeb. And there at Mount Horeb you see the earthquake and you see the wind and you see the fire. But an interesting thing happens. God is not in the earthquake and God is not in the wind and God is not in the fire. But where is God? The still, small voice speaks. The still, small voice speaks. There is where God speaks to him. And I think that in a sense, this is sort of a picture of Elijah's personality. The earthquake, and the wind, and the fire. God said, Elijah, you thought if all of these things happened, only if America would experience some great catastrophe, America would come back to God again. Don't you believe it? The people who know God and who know how he deals with his own, would receive it from his fatherly hand and come back to him, as the Lord often has to uh, teach us lessons in, that we can't learn any other way. But the people who will not respond wouldn't respond. Not by the earthquake, not by the wind, not by the fire. So God says, i got another way. It's the still, small voice. That voice is speaking. Psalmist felt it. Thy gentleness hath made me great. And then we go to those passages from the New Testament that I read for the second illustration of gentleness. And you hear our Lord Jesus quoting from that magnificent passage in Isaiah 42. You hear him speaking about uh, God's anointed, and this is at a time when the Pharisees had just taken counsel to put him to death because he had healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And do you know what happens? What does Jesus say? He says that he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy here. He quotes it and cites it. A bruised reed will he not break. Now what does that mean? I remember a cousin that my mother had who used to come and visit us. 
He was one of those marvelous people that everyone wants to have for a cousin. He used to be able to put ships in bottles, and he made the most unique little things. And during the Depression days, when you didn't have anything but Amos and Andy to get your mind off of your troubles, and uh, uh, you didn't have enough money to buy anything good to eat or to go anywhere, you had to figure out something. And I remember this cousin used to make whistles out of a piece. He'd take a, a piece of wood, and he'd cut out a whistle. And I used to love that whistle, but it wasn't very strong. It'd work a little while, and then it'd break. Well, what Jesus is alluding to here is a bruised reed. Here is a little reed whistle that a shepherd boy makes, and he plays his little reed instrument, and then it breaks, and it doesn't make a good sound anymore, so he throws it aside. Someone will come and step on it. What good is a bruised reed? Well, Jesus says a bruised reed will he not break. Inside you there may be this morning some memories of shameful deeds or acts which you have done and for which you have sought forgiveness, but by which you are haunted. And you're a bruised reed. And you wonder, what could God ever do with me? I'm no good. Well, now that's the devil talking when you say, when you say I'm no good. He wants to create that feeling in you. You are good. God made you to be good. And he's going to remake you by the power of his Holy Spirit to be what he wants you to be. That John Calvin, which all these ignoramuses who haven't read John Calvin uh, try to uh, paint as some severe, austere, non-human being. Read Calvin. Read about him. Read his commentaries. Read that hymn again. Christ in whom is the perfect gentleness. No harshness. Well, he's looking for bruised reeds. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter. Strings are broken which grace can restore. He's ready to take those broken cords and and revive them again and bring beautiful music from them. A bruised reed will he not break. What if faith is dim? What if your faith is small? And you think, I can't believe like these other people believe. I don't have it yet. Is he going to throw me away? My faith is just smoky, like an old lamp that's about to go out. Well, that's what it means, a smoking lamp will he not quench. He's not going to put that smoking lamp out. He'll deal gently with that and he'll cultivate that flame so that it will come back again. Truly great men always, always show that gentleness. And so Jesus shows it all the more. O Savior Christ, our woes dispel. For some are sick and some are sad, and some have never loved thee well, and some have lost the love they had. O Savior Christ, thou too art man, for thou hast been troubled, tempted, tried. Thy kind but searching glance can scan the very wounds that shame would hide. Now that kind Savior is looking at those wounds 
so that gently he may heal them. This past week, I was reading late in the night the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, very interesting person. And I read again about the surrender of Lee at Appomattox, how Robert E. Lee was 16 years older than Ulysses S. Grant. Robert E. Lee, that patrician embodiment of great wisdom and dignity and grace, whose hair was white and silver, whose beard was silver, resplendent in his uniform, broken-hearted over the pathetic tragedy that had befallen his beloved Southland. He comes to Grant to surrender. And General Grant, in accepting the surrender terms, was embarrassed because he was far from his place uh, uh, where his stores were and and when he went out to, to meet Lee, all he had was his lieutenant general's bars on his shoulder epaulets. He had a mud-bespattered uniform, and it, he was grubby in appearance. And he told an aide, he said, I'm embarrassed by this because I think General Lee will think that I am dressed this way in order to humiliate him. And when Lee came into his presence, Grant, this brusque, tough army man who once had been humiliated and driven from the military because of his acute alcoholism, will not allow this dignified patrician to be humiliated. He says to General Lee, I remember you. I served under you in Mexico. And General Lee says, I have been trying to recall what you looked like years ago. Grant said in his memoirs that the conversation became so pleasant that he almost forgot what they had met for, the terms of surrender. Do you remember how he told uh, General Lee that the officers need not put their sidearms by? How he instructed each or all of the uh, Yankee personnel, wherever they were, that as the Confederate troops returned on their way home, that there was to be no discharging of firearms, no humiliation of these men, but that they were to share their rations with them, that they were to have their horses for the spring plowing. Grant did not wish to humiliate, but he wanted to carry out what Lincoln had tried to set in motion a malice toward none and a charity toward all. Thy gentleness, the gentleness hath made me great. Oh, that we could manifest that gentleness, the gentleness of Christ, the thoughtfulness that would be there. What a grand thing it would be. Grant said in his memoirs that so far from wishing to shout and to sing and to humiliate his enemy that his heart was broken when he thought of how much these men had suffered in their tattered, ragged uniforms and how brave they had been to fight such overwhelming odds for so long a period of time. Well, we come now to Jesus' invitation to close. 
And what is that invitation? Many a church, I remember Jean Crow was here in the choir, her father's church, the North Avenue Church in Atlanta. Had out on a tablet these words on the peach tree street road side of the church. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Samuel Rutherford was a knight of Christ's covenant who suffered for Jesus in Scotland and was imprisoned in Aberdeen and about whom this congregation has heard much from me because my love for Samuel Rutherford is very great. Listen to these words which he writes from a dungeon in Aberdeen on September the 11th, 1637. Sometimes while I have Christ in my arms, I fall asleep in the sweetness of his presence, and he in my sleep stealeth away out of my arms, and when I awake, I miss him. You see the tenderness of that little man? Brave in the face of kings, but a man who knew where the priorities were, a man who loved Jesus so much that he said the cross of Jesus is the sweetest burden that ever I bore. He said it is such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings are to a bird. So Jesus says, come unto me. Who? Talk about a social gospel. Man, I don't know one that's needed any more than this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Jesus was looking at a group of people where Rome had oppressed them. And Rome is now beginning its fall and decline. He is looking at a group of people in the church who are cluttered with burden upon burden from law after law after law after law who are weary and heavy laden like an animal about to sink under the weight of what's placed upon it. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What kind of rest will he give us? Take my yoke upon you. Now, I've read for years that this was the yoke of an oxen but not until recently have I read that men wore yokes then and that Jesus as a carpenter who may have had to carry the mud and the plaster that were used in the building of houses would have had a yoke about his neck and there would be buckets on either end of that yoke. He would have made those yokes for other people to make their burdens better. My yoke is easy. The, the word there means that it's well-fitting. It fits us just right. Someone told about a man who complained that his cross was too heavy to bear, and so God allowed him to have a dream, and in his dream he went to heaven. 
And an angel said to him, here are a whole row of crosses. You pick out whichever cross you want. And the man picked up one and fell quickly, and another one, and it hurt his back, and another one, and he couldn't fit that one. And finally he found one, and he said, this is just right. The angel said, that's the one you've had all the time. That's the one you've had all the time. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He helps us because he's there with us. We're going to have the privilege from the Montreat Church of having two young men in our church go as participants, official participants. And the World Congress on Evangelization meeting in Lausanne, Switzerland on July 16th to the 25th. There will be some 2,400 delegates assembled from about 150 countries and practically every denomination. And the title of that Congress says, the theme of that Congress is, Let the Earth Hear His Voice. And if I could pick a text for the earth to hear, it would be come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. He will be with us. And learn of me. Learn of Jesus. That's what many of our friends who have been here for this Congress have been doing. Learning more about Jesus. For I am meek. Not the Casper milk toast type of meekness. But the God trained and the God tamed. The sensitive to what God says. I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Rest is not simply being anesthetized. Rest is not being stoned on booze or spaced out on drugs. There are many people who get on a jet airplane and fly someplace as far as they can go and are going to get some rest and go in a bar and start drinking, they're not any more restful there than they were before they got there. Rest is in Jesus. Rest is in his work. He gives us rest by giving us something to do. By giving us something to do. We take his yoke upon us. And we learn, we take, and we learn. And his yoke is easy, well-fitting, and his burden is light. What's the heaviest burden that anyone bears? It's the burden of sin. I'll be this afternoon at 6 o'clock in a hospital where a lot of people are burdened with feelings of guilt. And Jesus bids us to come unto him. What we need is a Savior to take away our sins. We need to believe in what he has done for us on the cross of Calvary and accept what he has done for us. Hearing his voice, believing his promise, come unto me, take my yoke upon you, Learn of me, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall be, shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked at Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. He gives us that because he died on the cross for us. There's a line from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet that says, when he shall die, cut him out in little pieces and place him against the sky. And the night shall shine so brightly that all the world will fall in love with dark and have no use for the garish light of day. Jesus did that and he brings to us the star by which we need to steer and his invitation is just as good today as the day he called it out in those streets long, long ago. Come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden. You can come to him right now you can ask him to come into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. You can know that he won't press out the little faith that you have, that he won't throw you away because you're a bruised reed. You can know that his gentleness will make you great in him. You can do that. That would be the greatest thing that could happen from this day, is if you could say, Lord Jesus, I open the door of my heart. And in the words of that old hymn, just as I am, I come. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, help us to know thy gentleness and patience with us, which has let us come to such a moment as this, and in answer to so many prayers has caused us to feel your gracious presence. Help us to know that you love us with an understanding that is deeper and broader than the measure of man's mind. Help us to know that your gentleness reaches into our minds and hearts and desires to speak to us that word which our souls hunger for. O oh, blessed God, will you speak to each one of us this day so that those who have not yet yielded his or her life to Jesus may be able to write it down that on this late day in May 1974, 
I gave my heart, the best I know how, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to be my Savior from sin and the Lord of my life. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.